welcome to Happy Hour on the Fringe. Fringe Arts is Philadelphia's premier presenter of contemporary performing arts. I'm Zach Blackwood. I'm one of the artistic producers here at Fringe. And I'm Katie Damers, another artistic producer here at Fringe. And today we are joined by our colleague, Christine Gowillam, who has joined us to visit the Fringe Festival this year. She is a PhD candidate at the University of Texas, a frequent collaborator with Fusebox, one of our festival partners down in Texas, and also has an artistic practice based in site-specific and community engagement work. We are thrilled that she's joining us today to talk about festivals, her work out in Texas, and the ways that we as presenters broadly across the country consider some of our contemporary questions. We're recording this episode right here in the kind of dead center of the Fringe Festival here uh, in Philadelphia, but you're probably listening to this a bit later down the line, and that's fine. While Christine's here in such a wealth of knowledge that we would kind of sit down for a roundtable conversation about festivals, why, how... (laughs) And what are they? You know, as Fringe continues to grow and evolve, we are reconsidering our own structural model. And so Fringe is now going to be transitioning into doing a series of festivals year-round. So we'll always have our fall flagship festival, the Fringe Festival that started it all. But we will now be doing other festivals throughout the year. Things like HIPFIS, the High Pressure Fire Service, which is a Philadelphia-based festival for artists in our local community, a comedy festival, a circus festival, and others to be announced. So Christine, maybe we'll start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about your research and where you came from? As we drink these beautiful drinks brought to us by Le Peg, our partner restaurant. Yeah, um, thanks for having me, y'all, um, and thanks for this delicious <laughs> coffee. Um, since we're mid-festival in the afternoon, sticking with coffee. Um, <laughs> so uh, I started looking at festivals after one of the faculty members in my program suggested I reach out to Ron Barry because um, I was moving from New York to Austin and had a small panic that there wasn't going to be very much live performance in the world that I'm interested in in Austin. Um, box will help you with that. And they did. And I realized that there's this whole world of festivals and a network of curators and artists and audience members that are sort of having this really interesting national and international exchange. But if you're not in the know, it's really hard to sort of parse out and I thought that would be a great dissertation project. So I'm sort of going through and trying to pull out some of the historical knowledge that's not really very accessible and then map these patterns that I think are really interesting. So the Fringe Festival has been happening for... 22 years? 22 years now. And other festivals like Fusebox or TBA in Seattle or even APAP, the Association for Performing Arts Administrators, have been going on for decades now. And yet I feel like it's fair to say, correct me if I'm wrong, Christine, that festivals have kind of come to a new level. They're increasing in terms of their scale, their intensity, and it changes the way that we as presenters and curators interact with artists. It changes our research practice as we really depend on these festivals as a concentrated place to see artists, but also to exchange with other colleagues in the field. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly what's so interesting for me about festivals. And as you mentioned, there's sort of varying like lengths of time that organizations have been together, but a lot of the festivals like um, the Curative Fringe really started in like the early 2000s. So that's where I'm starting my research to sort of ask the question of like what was happening in the late 90s and early 2000s that necessitated this model shift. And it's really interesting that y'all are like moving to another shift this year too. Yeah, I think it's also interesting to see there are these festivals that stand alone and then these festivals that are linked back to uh, year-round presenting organizations. Mm -hmm. And it feels like just some background, Fringe Arts started as, as a festival in September that now is attached to a year-round presentation practice mm -hmm. in a brick-and-mortar space. Um, and now we're almost, as a performing arts center, adding these festivals now in the way that some of our peers do. So if you look at uh, Lincoln Center, or Academy Center, these uh, larger performing arts institutions that, that build these festivals kind of onto a year-round presenting practice. And I guess... A good question to start with all of us is why is that valuable to them? Why is a festival model valuable to an institution that's already presenting year-round? Yeah, I mean, I see so much value in it. There's something about like the proximity and sort of the stacking up of so many different activities that I feel like there are these sort of temporary communities that form. I've been this is like my dorky academic phrase, but I've been calling them like affective bubbles, that there's these different sort of groups that form and dissipate or sometimes like really grow. And I feel like the festival model really affords people the opportunity to connect in a way where you're on presenting. If you go to see something once a month on a Friday night, you're not gonna have as much access to the same audience members. And I think there's a social atmosphere that usually goes along with it that is crucial. So not only are you seeing maybe two to three shows in an evening, but then because you have maybe an awkward gap between one show or the next, you're getting a drink or you're sharing a meal or spending time in a festival hub. So you're actively talking about the work. There's that community that builds a dialogue around it, which can often easily drift away if you just see a show and then get in your car and go back to your house. I'd also say it's it's fundable, just from a logistical perspective. It's it's in a nonprofit fundraising environment. It's it it welcomes a funder's support, and it also I don't know. It's kind of like a, a special occasion. Like it gives you this excuse to spend resources and to to blow it out and to do something big. It's like having a party at your house and you go out and shop for decor and do all the things that you probably wouldn't do if it was just like a week to week to week gathering for yourself. I don't know. Yeah. And what's really exciting about that curatorially is that all these curators are traveling to one another's festivals and it's an opportunity for presenters and curators to get together and sort of have these interpersonal moments that I think unless you're in New York City, like it's really hard to have on a consistent basis. Yeah. Yeah, it's a big part of our research practice as curators to travel to places. Zach and I went to Complétement in Montreal earlier this year and had an amazing time not only learning more about circus and meeting the artists who were performing at that festival, but also really talking with colleagues, people who 
work at Yale, who work at the Kennedy Center, who work in other countries, who had all converged in one given point. And agents, like booking agents there. It does become a kind of marketplace uh, for ideas, but also more practically for uh, just bookings. Like mm-hmm. you're out there trying to find who's taking your show next. Um, yeah, and Complet Moss is such an interesting example because it feels like there were people there who don't necessarily traffic in circus, but mm-hmm. feel like they need to go to that festival. It is extremely effective in the way that uh, the city embraces it, that the community embraces it, and it really does seem to seep into Montreal um, for the entire time that it's up. And Montreal, as we also found, is a city that, particularly in the summertime, is what they call a festival city. We happen mm-hmm. to be there during the firework festival as well, which was really fun. Mm-hmm. But they have created these public plazas that lend itself to these happenings, these performance events that are organized in festivals in a way to, I think, market them to people. But the other thing about a festival that I really like is that it gives you a particular moment and space and time to bring forward a curatorial thesis Mm. about why you're bringing certain artists together that can sometimes be harder to sustain over a year-long period where maybe someone is seeing the first thing in your season and then the last thing in your season. But if you're doing something more compact, they're able to see maybe four things within five days. They have a better sense of your curatorial thesis in which you brought all these varying people together. And when you can tell people that it's special, then you get this buy-in from the press, and the press starts telling the story with you in a way that they don't usually uh, do so rigorously throughout the rest of the year. It's interesting. Yeah. Christine, tell us more. What are some of the festivals that you have been to? What are some things that you've seen that have been surprising to you? Um, so I just was at Time Based Art Festival in Portland, Earlier this week, two days ago, I just left, and it runs on a pretty similar schedule to um, Live Arts, so I think y'all mentioned that you don't often get to go. Mm-hmm. Um, what I found really surprising is that every festival sort of has like its own personality. Mm-hmm. I've also been to Under the Radar in New York, um, which is part of the public, mm-hmm. and I'll probably go to Push, which is in mm-hmm. Vancouver mm-hmm. in January. And Coil and American Realness are also in that same time as Under the Radar. So there's sort of like a festival craze in New York City in January that feels very much more attached to the market than I think some of the more regional festivals. Absolutely, yeah. And like TBA, I was telling Katie yesterday, like they have amazing late night programming. Mm -hmm. Like their ability to get young people in a space like dancing and moving and having fun it's just like one of their strongest suits I think and Fusebox has this very chill Austin vibe that like you don't have to dress up you can wear your trucker hat and like it's sort of like everybody's friends because it's such Mm. a small community Um, so there's like people that are temporary staff that come back year after year that have been coming for like 10 years Yeah, and I'm still figuring out this festival because I've only been to one show. But I was thinking last night when I was at the show, like, it's such a great way to be in a city you don't know alone because I still felt so much a part of the experience last night, even though, like, I literally knew no one there. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I really want to, like, parse out more in my research. Like, 
the ability to be alone and be in community at a festival that's really nice. And this relationship between the city and the festival, I think, is something that really comes to define the programming and ultimately the success of the festival as well. Um, How have you seen that differ between all the different sites that you visited? Well, I mean, I think the cities that they're all in are vastly different. Um, People like to make a lot of comparisons between Portland and Austin, and they seem very different to me. And, like, New York has a very tight-knit scene, and it seems like Under the Radar is definitely for presenters that aren't in New York coming Mm. to New York. Mm -hmm. And American Realness and Coil are a little bit more in between. And Fusebox is really one of the only organizations that's making that type of work accessible to audiences in Austin. So it feels like it's very ingrained in the arts culture in Austin. And Fusebox is free. Mm-hmm. Yeah, tickets it's are free. free. There's barbecue everywhere. It just it feels like it strips away a lot of you know, the, the, the glam of, of a festival and kind of mm-hmm. just lets the art kind of be foregrounded and certainly the art in the community. Yeah, and like it's they still struggle to diversify their audiences, as I think all the festivals in this world do. But it is sort of challenging, since that's like my hometown festival, to navigate tickets at these other festivals when I'm just so used to these blocks being free. That hmm. I wonder, the one person that I did talk to last night was really sad that there weren't passes to this festival anymore, hmm. because this person would just go to like every show possible mm. and they're like well now I have to like buy tickets so I go to like five a day but it was definitely like a diehard fan so it's interesting to think that through yeah I wonder what it means for a city to be a festival city like what are the the, mm-hmm. the pre-existing uh, what are the prerequisites for that because you think of Edinburgh definitely in Montreal and Edmonton and Adelaide and what do they have in common? I mean, is it is it just a matter of, like, do you have a big public plaza somewhere and, like, a strong arts and business council? Like, Well, and is that something that you could pick? This is something Christine and I were talking about mm-hmm. yesterday. The local versus the more metropolitan. You know, all these mm-hmm. festivals that we're talking about happen primarily in urban environments. Are there factors that are specific to their success that are because of their cosmopolitan nature? Or are those factors that then you could say take to a small town in Idaho mm-hmm. to create a festival that something like Sundance might do, for example. Well, hmm, I guess it's hard. Well, what Sundance has going for it is, right, a, a movie doesn't have that much baggage, you know, like where <laughs> yeah. uh, some of the things that we present, I mean, we're building sets. We're, they really need an infrastructure. Yeah, yeah. So it becomes harder. And, and, and what you then need is, is multiple venues, but then you also need proximity to each other or a stellar public transit system or something yeah so there are these like logistical things there are like things that you can really point to that say this is a good festival city but then what does that what are the the consequences of that as far as like access who, who, who's being included in the conversation at that, at that point i think also like all most of the cities that you mentioned have like a lot more infrastructure for state funding mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and so it's interesting to think like of a festival city in the u.s especially in contemporary performance and not music mm-hmm. because like south by southwest like has made austin the city it is but it's very inaccessible because it's so expensive well i think actually back to my experience at holland festival because holland festival was cool in that it 
It is it's a contemporary performance festival that also includes a lot of high art, like a lot of traditional classical high art, like operas, ballets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in in the Philadelphia International Festival of the Arts is is, is comparable in that way. In that uh, in the past they've had uh, commissioned work by all of the resident companies of the Kimmel Center, which include the orchestra and the ballet and the, the opera. But then they'll also bring in like a six hundred highwayman. And I wonder how those things interact and how much of that is about exposing this higher audience to this contemporary work. I don't think, I think that's kind of a unilateral thing a little bit, mm-hmm. partly because of finances. Am I crazy? I could be crazy. But I don't know. It's like, it's interesting. It feels like sometimes things like that are in there to diversify offerings and, and, and try to diversify audiences, but I don't know in what direction all the time. Yeah, this is such a great question for Mark Russell. Um, oh, yeah. Because he like really did start under the radar to introduce folks at APAP to work that they wouldn't otherwise be mm-hmm, presenting. Yeah. And so I think that is a weird, kind of a tricky question. Like, the assumption is that certain regions are interested in that type of work, but That's they right. don't have yeah. the infrastructure for it. Mm-hmm. And so I think... These like the festivals are actually helping to break that down in some ways. Mm. And the other great thing about a festival is that sometimes you have greater buy-in, where you can say, you know, I trust this organization, or I'm interested in one thing, and the next thing just happens to be right around the corner. So yeah. I will go see something else. I think the barrier for exploration or curiosity is often lower in that type of. Yeah. Environment. Oh my god, I talk to people here and, and they say, okay, I know that I have to see every single curated show, but what else should I see? And I'm like, whoa, like, that's wild that you, there's, there's no kind of argument or conversation with us. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that's not uh, an opportunity for growth, you know? Like, I would love for everyone to uh, trust us, but then to also engage with the work fully on their way in, too. Like, I don't want people to trust a, the curator so much that they don't do their homework. Right, that we're blindly leading them Yeah. Somewhere. Oh, God. Yeah. That kind of leads to a question that I have for y'all, since there are so many different threads of Fringe. Like, Mm -hmm. how do you all deal with those crossovers? Because sort of what you were saying about the higher art and the experimental art coming into proximity, like, there's a lot of different types of work coming into proximity in these few weeks. Well, I'd say that a big ethos and fringe arts is a kind of laissez-faire attitude. I, I wonder what our personality as a festival is, because it, it's weird. It feels mature, but it also feels like it's in on the joke a little bit mm-hmm. of itself, and, and we try and present as much as we can. It, well, if you talk to Nick, Nick will say that he is interested in art making universally, and I, I think he, I, I think that's true. I think that we, as far as the independent shows, the curated shows, digital work, and those crossovers in between, and then this year, us kind of guiding Love Park in commissioning three independent works, we're trying to create more gradients between a presented show and an independently produced show. I think we're interested in more and more kind of cross-pollination there. I mean, that's really exciting for artists. I think that's another side of festivals that are so important is that local artists get to be in conversation with mm-hmm. artists that they might not otherwise have access to, and then international artists are seeing local artists that again, wouldn't be touring to where they're from. Yeah. And that's the really amazing thing about this festival is that there's like also these different production levels and like sort of spaces within funding and all that that people have access to one another. Yeah, and, and communities crop up within the community, right? Like, mm-hmm. there are four artists sharing a space at Panorama right now. Yes. 
where I think they all rented that, they went in on that rental together, and their shows are, are all like loaded in simultaneously, and I think they just change the direction of the chairs in this yeah, like, like four way space. Pieces. Yeah, that's really cool. And that's so interesting to me, but um, yeah, I, it's it's hard to, to parse out. It, it does feel kind of monolithic in a certain way, but there is so much in there. I don't know. I um, think like the exchange is something that we care about. Yes. Like, someone like Heiner Goebbels, who has never been to Philadelphia before, mm-hmm. we were so excited to present his work, but also wanted opportunities for local artists to engage with him. Mm-hmm. So as part of presenting two of his works, two very different pieces, one here in our theater and one all the way over at the Navy Yard, which utilized that space in a very different way, we had a workshop with him and a talk back with him and a book discussion with him. So multiple opportunities for people to come and talk to him. And he actually was very open to that and interested in speaking with the public, which was great. And there were a number of people that came specifically to Philadelphia because they had been researching him or knew that it was difficult to see his work, particularly multiple of his works, in two days. Um, But I think likewise, some of our international artists have been curious to go see the independent shows. Like, Do You Want a Cookie? Those artists are here for almost a four-week period, which is amazing. And so many of them who are not local to Philadelphia on their days off are seeing independent shows and getting a sense of what the community here is like. And as a part of their research practice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I, 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 not all the independent shows in the Philadelphia Fringe Festival are from Philadelphia. I think mm-hmm. kind of misconception is that there's ind- independent shows are from Philly, curated shows are international. That's not true. There are, are multiple mm-hmm. local artists in the curated Fringe Festival. There are multiple independent artists who are not from Pennsylvania. And I don't know, I'd, I'd like to, to dig into that a little bit if we can. These artists who come from New York and maybe do one day mm-hmm. uh, doing a comedy show at somebody's house or something here, yeah. they're here not just to for people to see their work, but because they'd like to come see the things happening here. That's that's cool and gets back to kind of what we were talking about as like a, a visiting festivals as, as a research practice, which is your gig, Christine, <laughs> kind of how we do the, the vast majority of our scouting. Yeah. Well, that's exactly why my research practice is the way it is, because I was so curious about this network and interpersonal way of curating that I just sort of started to do what I saw curators doing um, as like participant observation. So I'm sort of following in the footsteps of like what what is this process of becoming part of this network of curators and what does it mean to go to all of these festivals? And I feel like I'm sort of uncovering this curatorial practice through copying it, you know, from a different lens. Well, and like one thing is that I think it's important to bring up is we go to these festivals sometimes and we start block booking there where you happen to see a show and they always seat us all next to each other and you're just sitting there and you finish a show and you turn to so-and-so and you turn to the other person and you say, okay, are we going in on bringing this to the United States? Are we going to split mm-hmm. international costs and visas? Because it, it does feel like there's a kind of agility in the market right now that's maybe not always been there. Like, I, I think people uh, in the past wanted premieres or wanted... Uh, to be the first person to present something in the United States. But now I think we just get concerned that there won't be room for us on a tour as there are more and more festivals. So we start making these decisions relatively earlier. Is that... 
I think that's fair. It's definitely something that happened to us when we were in Colpetumont. Yeah. And, you know, that's the other great aspect of this social thing is that there are very clear partnerships that are forged. Mm-hmm. And frankly, that is imperative to bring some of these international works over. It is so expensive that we really can't make it work for us. And also on the artist's behalf, it's a lot to ask someone to travel all the way to the United States for an engagement that might only be six shows over four days in the French festival. So increasingly, a big part of making sure that our festival works well is having relationships with Fusebox, with the Walker Art Center, with the Kitchen, with the ICA Boston, such that we can say to an artist, yes, we'd like you to come here, and we're committed for the success of your show and the success of you to help put together something larger for you, Mm. that we are not just thinking about solely ourselves. It's really a larger ecology that we're participating in. Yeah, and I think APAP's similar, too. People wheel and deal at APAP. But then I, I, I would say that that's kind of the, the background of that festival. And I wonder, do we, do we know why? I think it's because it, that, that's how it presented itself to us. As It's now Association of Performing Arts Professionals, but in the past it was arts presenters. Mm-hmm. And it was really a booking conference with showcases that were very, like, kind of vaudeville yeah. You know, walk out there, do your gig, and see if anybody calls you. And now it's, of course, expanded out. There, are, we, we say APAP to mean, like, seven festivals happening in New York over, like, a two-week period. And it does feel a little bit more exhibition-focused now. And, and, and I don't know. I, I think that some of that has fallen off. But I think it still, in many ways, feels like a meat market to yeah. the artists who are oh, participating yeah. in yeah. it. It's incredibly taxing. Inevitably, there's a huge snowstorm. People Everybody gets sick. don't get paid for these short promotional showings that they do. And certainly some artists find that it's a profitable way for them to book upcoming engagements. But for many artists who may be on the more experimental side, mm. it's part of a larger continuum in which they are continuing to like touch base with those relationships and make sure they're on people's radars. But the one-to-one ratio for an artist, I would say, is pretty slim in terms of someone coming to see their show and then the next day being like, great, when can you be here in December? So those things are often less transactional or at least more complicated than that, for better or for worse. I mean, that's part of why I'm interested in researching the festivals I'm looking at, that there seems to be a lot of nuanced thought about what does this artist work mean in this particular place and Mm. I've spent a lot of time mapping like which performances go to which festivals and I've had the opportunity to see the same performance at different festivals sometimes Mm. and that's a really interesting conversation to be able to have like using your network like how is a show gonna land in Ohio at the Wexner or Mm. in Portland or in Austin and at these organizations that also have like very different footprints like this is a big established center fusebox has like an addict office and no permanent performance space so there's all of these different ways that you can sort of see the life of a show through festivals Mm -hmm. but i think i have like a really i'm very privileged to be able to like sort of watch these festivals have different effects in different places yeah, and the curators all have very, very different sensibilities. Like, mm-hmm. I know sometimes it seems like the same shows are going to be on everybody's season in the next year or something, but the, no, it's, it's funny. Like, we'll go see a show sometimes, and Nick or me will say, oh, so-and-so will definitely be interested in this, and so-and-so is definitely out. 
because mm-hmm. and, and not always just because of their personalities, but because of their audiences, mm-hmm. because of their mm-hmm. practice, because of just logistics of their space. It, it's funny how that shakes out sometimes. Well, Christine, what's next for you here at Fringe and then more broadly in your practice? Um, here at Fringe, I am going to spend the next 48 hours going to see as much as I can and hanging out in the hub and chatting with people. Um, that's sort of how my method is. We should probably give you a tour of our building at some point. Yeah, we'll do right? that next. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a tour of the building. Um, and next, I'm going to LAX Festival in October. See you there. Yeah, great. Really excited. Yeah, we'll talk more. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Christine, for joining us as part of Happy Hour on the Fringe. We hope that you all will continue to follow Fringe Arts on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, and through our app. Thanks, everybody.